All right. Uh, welcome back to our fifth episode of Diet Debates. It has been over one month, but we are finally back. Um, one half your host, Nathan. And I'm the other half, Stephen. Uh, with the 2021 regular season in the books, it's and the play-in tournament now over. Uh, the final playoff matchups have been released and the award finalists have been released. So our first topic will be the final three finalists. And for, not, for the first one, MVP, it was Steph Curry, Joel Embiid, and Nikola Jokic. Who, in your opinion, should win MVP this year? Um, looking at the polling, it's probably it's pretty easily going to be Jokic. Like, Embiid probably... Uh, Embiid was pretty good, but, like, he missed some time. And uh, Curry, you know, as we saw, he got eliminated by John Morant and the nine-seed Grizzlies in the play-in. So I think the path is pretty clear for Jokic to win MVP, especially since uh, he got a top-three seed in... Uh, the Western Conference, even after Jamal Murray went down, I think just Jokic is the clear favorite here. Yeah, I would, I would definitely agree. I mean, I see a lot of people saying that it should be Curry, but I think regular season record, especially their team record, is a really important factor. And I mean, if, if they miss the playoffs, I don't really see how that works in favor of Curry. And like you said, Embiid missed a lot of time. So, yeah. Our, our pick for MVP as of right now is Nikola Jokic, but our next topic is Rookie of the Year, which is between LaMelo Ball, Anthony Edwards, and Tyrese Halliburton from the Kings. Uh, how about this? Who do you think should be Rookie of the Year out of these three? Obviously, LaMelo missed some time, and Edwards started the season really cold, so... Uh, I'd, I'd, I'd say LaMelo, though, because, like, LaMelo managed to lead, like, what was a lottery team into the playoffs. And, um, yeah, like, I think, like, Edwards, if he kept up his second-half um, stats for a whole season, especially if LaMelo went out, it's probably him. But uh, the fact that Edwards started the year shooting, like, 40% from the field, whereas LaMelo was uh, pretty much the best player on a playoff team since day one means that I think – Lamelo should win this one, even with missing some time. I would actually disagree with that. I think it should be Anthony Edwards, the number one pick. Even though he did start the season very shaky, uh, the final, I would say, like, two-thirds of the season, he was really good. Um, I mean, obviously, Lamelo Ball, out of these three rookies, his team has the best record, but I think him having that big wrist injury definitely is going to hurt his case, and Anthony Edwards has, I mean, he's, he's been really solid. You know, he's had electrifying plays. So, yeah, our picks for Rookie of the Year would be LaMelo and Anthony Edwards. Although it is worth noting that Halliburton had a very good year, too. He actually led them in win shares and shot 40% from three and 47% from the field, which um, are a lot better than um, Edwards and I think LaMelo as well. So, shout out to him, too. There's three very deserving candidates here. And for the third award, which is most improved player, it's between Jeremy Grant, Michael Porter Jr., and Julius Randle. Um, I'll actually start this off, and I think it's pretty clear who's going to win. I think it should be the guy that was the first option on the team that made it to the four seed when they were out of the, when they were in tanking position last year. So 
Um, in my opinion, it should be Julius Randle. I don't think I need to make a long explanation. It should be Julius Randle, period. Yeah, there's like no argument here. Like, like Grant, Grant made a big jump from role player to all-star and Porter also stepped up in Mike, uh, in Jamal Murray's uh, absence. But Randall literally went from a guy who everyone thought was putting up empty stats to someone who quite literally is an MVP candidate on a team that uh, is, looks to make a playoff run. So, And like uh, his uh, three-point percentage increase from this year to last year was uh, pretty significant. It was actually... Um, 14 a 14% leap in his three-point percentage and just a ton of improvement across the board. Just, yeah, he's the most deserving uh, easily. And our next award, which is sixth man of the year, which is between Jordan Clarkson, Joel Ingles, and Derek Rose. Who do you believe is the most worthy of this award this year? Um, uh, in my opinion, this one is actually a pretty close race between uh, Clarkson and Ingles, but I feel like uh, Clarkson did start uh, the season really hot, but started to cool off towards the second half. Uh, whereas um, Ingles actually uh, kept it up and actually shot 45% from three this year. Um, I think Ingles does narrow it out. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think one interesting aspect is this is supposed to be six fan of the year, but the fact that two guys from the same team are competing. I think that's a little unfair for other candidates, but I will have to go with Clarkson too. I mean, just the stats pretty much say it all. And I think a lot of people are actually rooting for Derek Rose to get it, but in my opinion, I don't think NBA awards should be pity awards. You know, like, I mean, I wouldn't call it a pity award. Like Rose was pretty good, but like, like the stats say that, uh, yeah, Clarkson and especially Ingles were much better players. Yeah, but uh, it's like, hmm. like I, I don't think Derrick Rose should really be in. I definitely think he should be a finalist, but I don't think he should be anywhere near, you know, getting the sixth man of the year because I just don't think he had stats. Um, I mean, he did play on a very bad Pistons team to start the season, so. Yeah, so our pick for sixth man of the year went to Jordan Clarkson, and finally is our defensive player of the year. Uh, Steven, you actually thought someone was sub- snubbed from the final three candidates, which was Rudy Gobert. Uh, so Draymond, as we all know, uh, Rudy Gobert, Ben Simmons, and Draymond Green were the three finalists. But uh, me and many other people believe that uh, Bam Adebayo was in fact uh, snubbed for the award as a uh, Bam, in fact, uh, held his um, the the people he guarded to lowest lowest field goal percentage of all three of these candidates. Yet, uh, I think the fact that the Heat went from being a Finals team to a sixth seed this year really took the spotlight off him. And the fact that, of course, Simmons and Gobert played on uh, top contenders obviously influenced the decision to put them in. Mm-hmm. And out of these three, who do you believe is? the defensive player of the year for the 2020 to 2021 season? Uh, it's probably pretty easily Gobert. Like, uh, Draymond was good, but I don't think he has anywhere near the case of the other two. And uh, Simmons is a great uh, man-to-man defender, but Gobert was the best, actually the most important player and the key of the Jazz defense on a number one seed. So 
I think he's the pretty clear choice here. I would definitely get definitely agree. You know, I think Gobert's gonna be the clear cut winner. You know, he had a great season. And finally is the coach of the year, which is between Quinn Snyder of the Utah Jazz, Tom Thibodeau of the New York Knicks, and Monty Williams of the Suns. I think this is a pretty close race, but who would you think is the coach of the year for this year? I'm uh, very much uh, stuck between Thibodeau and Monty Williams. Uh, Quinn Snyder is a very good coach, but of course the roster he got this year was obviously already a playoff team. And all he did was add people like uh, Jay Crowder and continued development from uh, Clarkson and Ingles is what led to a one seed. Uh, what do you actually, what do you think, uh, who do you think is between uh, Thibodeau and Williams actually? I think that, I mean, first of all, Quinn Snyder's team, I mean, has Donovan Mitchell, who's an all-star, Gobert, who's likely the defensive player of the year, and a lot of great players, a lot of solid players with great depth. Monty Williams has CP3 and Devin Booker, and the Suns roster is, you know, has a solid supporting cast around the two of them, but the Knicks, I mean, Julius Randle is obviously amazing, but other than that, I don't, I can't really name any other Knicks players that I think would be key players on any other playoff contention team. And I think the reason Knicks got all the way to the four seed has a, a lot to do with Thibodeau's coaching. So even though yeah, he does have uh, the worth seed, noting is uh, the Knicks from what, from being like a bottom feeder defensive mm-hmm. team to I think fourth in defense, uh, and that was a lot. A lot of that had to do with Thibodeau installing a defensive mindset uh, into the team. So, yeah, I think uh, Thibodeau does narrow out Monty Williams. Although the jump that he managed to take this uh, Suns team also cannot be denied. Yeah. And with that, that concludes our finalist debate. And we'll be moving on to the play-in system, which... I believe was first introduced in the bubble, but what did you think of the play-in games this year, Stephen? Uh, I thought most of them were pretty good, especially the Western Conference ones. Mm-hmm. Like They provided exactly what they needed to do, which were uh, close games that gave every team a chance to win. So I'd say the NBA definitely accomplished what they were trying to do here. Yeah, I mean, it's clear that Adam Silver, is, is he, he loves De Niro, you know? And that Warriors and Lakers game, I heard, I think it joined maybe like 5 million viewers. I think that's what I saw in an article. But yeah, it was really competitive games. But I think like with Curry being out of the play-in, Curry being out of the playoffs because of the play-in, I'm not sure how fondly fans will think of the play-in now. But uh, we'll move on to the results of the play-in or the most significant games, which was yeah, let's the Warriors. go from yeah. um yeah, let's skip the nine ten ones because uh Memphis San Antonio was expected as well as oh yeah let's talk about Indiana versus Charlotte because uh most people actually picked uh the Hornets but they got blown out by uh, I think was like thirty. Uh, I think the Pacers roster is actually very underrated and when things are clicking they can be a very deadly lineup and i mean hornets you know hornets they kind of just what should i say they depend on 
you know, one of their guys like Rozier, Ball, or Hayward. Uh, Rozier was, was extremely here. cold in that game. I believe he went one for nine from field goal. Yeah, so. Uh, I mean, next, uh, in the Wizards-Celtics game, uh, I believe Jason Tatum dropped 50 to lead a uh, shorthanded um, Celtics team to the seventh seed. How do you feel about that one? I mean, Jason Tatum's only 19, so it's clear that he's <laughs> the best player in the world. But I'm just, it's just a great game from Jason Tatum. You know, he's missing his other one-two punch, Jalen Brown. So it was a game that he had to step up, and he clearly did that. So props to him. I'm not sure how well the Celtics are going to do against the Nets, but, you know, props to him for winning that playing game when, when they mattered. And now let's talk about the game we all wanted to see, which was uh, Lakers-Warriors. Uh, I think I think the biggest story, like, even besides Curry versus LeBron or the LeBron game, when it was the officiating, and I think, let me just clarify, I think there was a post on Twitter that said the NBA reviewed the final two minutes, and they confirmed that there were no missed calls. So, little argument about how refs were helping Lakers in crunch time. I think that can, you know, kind of be swept under the rug. And even the dream Although on, there were some controversial missed calls and like offensive fouls on Draymond and stuff. I mean, oh, I mean, speaking of, okay, we'll go back to that. But speaking about Draymond, especially that hard foul on LeBron, I mean, the the, I mean, the replay was kind of fuzzy and it's hard to tell that hard to tell if uh, he actually did graze LeBron's eye. I mean, Draymond, uh, the quotes that LeBron uh, provided after the game certainly made it seem like uh, Draymond did smack him in the face, but yeah. All right, I love I kind of don't like it when LeBron makes those kind of responses because just it just makes it so much cringier. But I mean like the replay showed it. he clearly got all face there was no ball involved i think if it was any other game any other player that would have easily been a flagrant but you know it's 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 crunch time and essentially yeah so although it but, is worth noting that draymond had to block a shot and draymond is extremely undersized for uh, someone who yeah. was supposed to be defending the post so even with him jumping that was his maximum reach yeah, and this, this, this may be pretty controversial, but I think the Warriors are getting taste of their own medicine after all their years of dominance that was helped by questionable calls, in my opinion. I mean, um, what would you say some of the questionable calls for the Warriors were? The Rockets game seven, even besides that 27 missed three-pointers, there were a lot of fouls on Harden, especially at the three-point line that didn't get called. The moving screens, I mean... You can just go search for a YouTube video about like all the missed calls in like the Western Conference Finals. There was a literal play where Jordan Poole boxed out James Harden on the screen to get Curry open, and that wasn't called. Uh, we can even go back to 2018 NBA Finals Game 1, where Cavs were leading by two with, I believe, a minute and 30 remaining, and KD went in for a layup. LeBron was clearly out of the restricted area, and he took a charge. 
one official called it a block, one official called it a charge on Durant. And after that, it went to replay. And the rules of replay at that time were that you can't, the only time you can replay that play is to check if LeBron was in the restricted area or not. And he was clearly out of the restricted area. Yet the Warriors, they got the, they got the benefit of the doubt. They got two free throws and that tied up the game. So it's just there were numerous cases that you can't deny where Warriors were clearly being helped by refs. And I mean, what goes around comes around. So that's just my take. You know, this obviously has my biased opinion because I'm not a Warriors fan. But yeah, I think okay. they got to taste their own medicines. And finally, talking about the completed uh, play playing games, uh, the Warriors ended up losing to the ninth seed Grizzlies with John Morant dropping 35 points to send the Warriors home on their home floor. So uh, that was also an extremely good game. Um, what are your thoughts on it? Uh, I guess first we can look at the fourth quarter where Draymond Green was essentially wide open for a floater and he got all backboard. Um I mean, if you're an NBA player, in my opinion, even though I'm a couch potato, I think you should definitely make that, regardless of whether you're a more defensive heavily player. But, I mean, I think the real breakdown was the final, like, final two or three possessions of overtime where Andrew Wiggins was the one clutching up shots and breaking them. Jordan Poole forgot how to dribble and dribbled it out of bounds, you know. Um, so... Do you believe that? How should I say this? Do you believe that the Warriors' loss resulted more from John Morant's success or the players around Curry not being able to support him enough? Um, like I would say that it was like the players around Curry, but like the thing is, um, the players around Curry were basically a G League team without Curry on the floor, so. Like it's partly Curry, like it's partly Curry's teammates' faults, but like Curry's the one who got them into this situation in the first place, and they just didn't perform. Mm-hmm. So I'm not exactly sure how to answer that. But uh, related issue was like a lot of people during this game and the Lakers game uh, were talking about how this would be different if the Warriors had Clay Thompson, who of course suffered a season-ending injury. Um, how different do you think this would have been if the Warriors had Clay Thompson out there? with uh, Curry and Wiggins and Draymond? I mean, in a hypothetical situation where Clay didn't get injured all season, I don't think they would be in the position for a plane. I think a team like the Mavericks would, or, or, or maybe the Blazers would be in the position for a plane. Uh, so yeah, I would say there's definitely an, an element of truth to that since Clay's game never really revolved around athleticism. He was more of a great catch-and-shoot guy who was great defensively. I mean, I think that should be a talk, too, since, you know, a torn Achilles, a torn ACL, that's going to limit his, how should I say this, like agility a lot. So, I mean, how, how good do you think he's going to be on defense? Because it's clear that Clay Thompson was one of the best perimeter defenses, defenders, you know, in the world before he got injured. Very much true, but uh, as we've seen, um, his former Golden State teammate, uh, Kevin Durant, 
uh, recently made a re- uh, made a return this year from his uh, torn Achilles, and in the brief uh, minutes he played, uh, he looked pretty good. But uh, speaking more about Durant, um, as we know, the Nets have not had much time to uh, play together, and now they're getting thrown into a playoff series where in the second round they'll potentially face the Bucks, and in the third round the Sixers. So um, how do you think this team will be able to play um, – more importantly, defensively uh, throughout the playoffs. Um, I mean, Kyrie and James Harden. I want to say James Harden is a terrible defender, but Kyrie is going to be a big hole on off on defense, especially if they're going against a team that has a great point guard. I'm not sure what team the Eastern Conference has a superstar caliber level point guard, but I think. In order for the Nets to be able to win games like consistently, and by consistently, I mean with you know, a very large margin, I'll say their offensive side will need to step up because I don't think that their defensive side is going to hold up. I'm not going to say it's bad, but I will definitely wouldn't say it's top-notch. And, um, but, especially against teams like the Bucks who have Giannis or the Sixers who have Ben Simmons. Uh, obviously... It's going to be difficult, but uh, obviously Durant is a pretty good rim protector. Harden is no longer the Shaqton a fool Harden he was, but he's still not a great defender. So obviously they're going to need guys like DeAndre Jordan or Blake Griffin to actually like, contribute on defense if they uh, want any chance of coming out of the East. There was also, I think, a statement from one of the NBA commentators that said that if, uh, what was it called? If the Nets do lose in the playoffs, it'll be like one of the biggest like failures of the team. Or do, do you find this tra- statement to be true, or would you disagree? Oh, the big like the biggest failures in Nets history? No, I I think it was NBA history. I mean, NBA history. Hmm. Um, if the Nets actually like had time to develop the whole year and like and still lost, I would definitely call it a failure. But the thing is, like the Nets never really got a chance to play together, and even then, they I think they still have a couple more years to try and get a ring. So I wouldn't call it like one of the biggest failures in NBA history. Will's if like if they fail to win a championship in the next couple of years, maybe we can say that, but. Right now, I feel like their legacies are very much in the air. I think, I actually think this is a championship or bust season for the Nets because, I mean, it's clear that Kevin Durant, Kyrie, James Harden, these guys are all, I think Kyrie's entering his 30s, you know, Harden and Durant, they're not getting any younger. So I feel like right now is there, they're in their win now mode, especially with, I guess, the Eastern Conference, you know, in I guess the Western Conference still being much much stronger, they have a better chance of making it out the East. So, you know, if they have three superstars and you know they got great veterans and great past all stars like Blake Griffin, I would definitely say this would be a championship or bust season. Like defining a championship or bust season, would you call the 2019-2020 Clippers a championship or bust season? They clearly were. I mean, like was it? it's a, it's obvious. Like, it, I would define championship or bust as like the 2017-2018 Rockets, where 
you have guys like Ariza and Chris Paul and uh, Capella who are all free agents. And like, this is your one actual chance at a ring. But like the teams like the Clippers or the Nets in this case have like at least a couple more years where they have like the, this high-end talent. So obviously they're expected to win the chip and it's a disappointment if they don't. But like, I still feel like it's not a championship or bust here. Like they still have room to improve especially considering these Nets uh, haven't played with each other for, like, most of the year. I mean, I I mean, I guess that does make sense to a certain extent, but also at the same time, you know, you asked if the Clippers were a championship and bus team or bus team, and I think it should be pretty clear. They gave up, like, their future first-round picks for the next six or seven years or so. No, they traded all their young guys just to get Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, and they didn't even make it past the second round. I think that's the true definition of a championship or bust team because you know, even the Miami Heats in 11 to 12, at least they still made the finals, you know. But the Clippers, they didn't even make it past the second round. Miami just... Heat, 2011, 2012? Yeah, I believe. Uh, 2010 to 2011. Yeah, because the 2012 uh, Heat, I believe, won against Oklahoma City yeah um like I guess you could say that like how like if you're if you're like heavily favored to win a championship but you don't I guess you could consider that a championship or bust season but like the thing is like like most of these teams have like several more chances like it's like uh for the 2018 Houston Rockets it was like clearly obvious once uh Trevor Ariza left that like this team wasn't going to ever going come close to uh, what they did in 2018. So that's what I would define as a championship or bust season. All right. And with that concludes our basketball portion of this debate today. And we will now be moving on to the MLB where they took a significant hit with Mike Trout suffering, I believe was a calf injury and now being out six to eight weeks. Uh, Stephen, what were your initial reactions to this? Um, It's definitely very disappointing because, um, as we know, Trout has, other than um, in 2017, he's been mostly healthy and very productive, as always. So uh, the Angels are in fifth place, last place in their division again. So not having their best hitter and MVP candidate um, is for like and it's for an extended amount of time so it's definitely going to hurt them and it just shows how how time flies because it seems like Trout has been here forever and he has but he's never really had an injury like this which is kind of frightening and I think Mike Trout's fellow teammate Shohei Otani who's been fantastic this this year i think even as of right now he's leading the league in homers you know people are going as far as to say that he's the best player in the league right now uh what would you say about this would you say shohei's the best player in the league right now Uh, i've been extremely pessimistic on otani in uh in the past and uh, i would say he's definitely top 10 in uh hitting right now and um, his pitching is extremely good as well. But, like, the thing is, he is walking um, a lot of players, a lot of batters. So 
Um, I'm somewhat questioning the viability of this long-term effectiveness of his pitching, but as of now, definitely he's one of the few bright spots on this Angels team. And what do you think would be, I guess, the best way to solve their, this Angels situation since, since it's clear that great players like Trout and possibly Otani, their careers are pretty much getting wasted away by this organization? What would you say is the main step to fix this organization and help them at least make the playoffs? It's pretty easy, which is that they need pitching. Like, if you look at this Angels roster, like, the hitting actually looks really good. They have Trout, they have Otani, they have Anthony Rendon, they have Jared Walsh, who's somehow come out of nowhere to uh, have a really good year. But then you look at this pitching, and it's all guys who would be really good, but they're prime were, was five years ago. Like, you have Dylan Bundy, who has an ERA of six. You have Andrew Heaney with an ERA of five. Otani is the only one with an ERA under 4.5. So it's just, it's like building a Ferrari without the interior parts. You have this really nice group of hitters and high-end talent, but you don't have the role players around them that can make it work. And I believe part of that is because of the Angels' uh, lack of talent development since uh, Trout. So uh, after Trout came up in 2012, the Angels have not had any significant uh, role player contributors, especially in pitching. And a lot of that is because they picked these extremely high-end talent, but extremely low-floor guys who uh, tend to bust a lot. And to make the playoffs, the Angels need to um, start paying more attention to their pitching staff and to start developing their players instead of buying these high-end talents like Rendon or uh, locking up Trout or Justin Upton. And, you know, on the other side, I think there was a very prominent player who had turned from injury and had a great game, Fernando Tatis. I mean, what were your next uh, reactions to his first game back where he went four for four? And he even hit a home run. Um, I was kind of disappointed because I am a Dodgers fan. And also uh, Tatis was sitting on my fantasy team bench for that four for four game. So I did not get to enjoy it. But obviously for the sport of baseball, it's an extremely good thing that Tatis came back. Um, uh, we could e easily see that um, he was suffering from this back injury that was hindering his swing. And to see him come back so strong is extremely good to see. And finally, there was a recent controversy, you know, involving the Colorado Rockies stealing signs using massage guns on the bench. I mean, could you could you give us a little explanation on that and what you uh, think? So obviously, as we all know, the uh, Houston Astros stole signs in 2017 and possibly 18 um, by banging on a trash can to alert a hitter of whether a pitch was off speed. Uh, after looking at the television to steal the sign. Um, so uh, former Yankees catcher Eric Kratz says that uh, the Rockies also similarly used the TV and instead of banging on a trash can, they would use a massage gun on the bench to create a signal instead. And what's in fact very ironic is that the Rockies, despite using this sign-stealing system, were still mediocre in 2018 and terrible in 2019. So 
um, I guess this kind of proves that um, cheating can only take you too far when you don't have any talent. I mean, I think it's worth mentioning that if the Rockies are stealing signs, I'm expect that they get some kind of benefits from cheating, but you know, they're last in the division. So I'm not sure how this is working out for them, you know, in any positive way. But finally, we're going to wrap this up with a little best segment. And the first thing I actually want to start off with is who would you say is the most popular player in the MLB right now? And by popular, it doesn't always necessarily mean best. No. So for like basketball, I mean, I could argue that the best player right now is maybe LeBron or Jokic, but I think popular Steph Curry would take it. I mean, you know, he's not only is he very popular. I could argue LeBron is the most popular, but not international. You know, Curry is. I mean, just put Curry in Asia. You know, yeah, LeBron is loved in China, isn't he? You know, yeah, I'm sure. Uh, the very rational Mao would love to, you know, <laughs> visit him, you know, and talk about Taiwan and all the movements. But who would you say is the most popular player in baseball right now? Um, Popularity-wise, I would actually argue that it is Tatis because he is a lot younger than, say, a Mike Trout or a Mookie Betts. And he's playing on a big market team in San Diego that uh, – actually has good pitching and is poised to make a deep playoff run and he's very exciting to watch so i'd actually say tatis is the most uh, popular marketable player in baseball what about uh you know always high bellinger you know cody bellinger i think do you think he also makes a very nice case for i would say bellinger has actually fallen quite a bit since 2019 when he won mvp obviously in 2020 um, he struggled a bit. And in 2021, uh, he's actually been injured for most of this year. So I think not being in the spotlight on a team like the Dodgers obviously hurts his um, popularity. And moving on and to the most traditional best, who would you say is the best player in the MLB right now? And I guess to switch things up, maybe we could exclude Trout because... He's going to be out for a significant amount of time with that injury. But who would you say is the best player in the MLB right now? Mm-hmm. So not including Trout, right? So yeah. um, uh, before the season started, I would actually say Mookie Betts, who was fresh off, of course, leading the Dodgers to their uh, first World Series in 32 years. Mm-hmm. But um, Betts has struggled quite a bit. And well, not quite a bit. He's been very productive, but he's still been far off his usual production. So actually, I would say um, uh, Ronald Acuna Jr. has been extremely productive. And uh, even though the Braves are struggling a bit, he's been uh, amazing. So I'd say at the moment, um, he's actually the best player in the league right now. Mm-hmm. 